In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is uh, moving forward uh, into a, the, really the final section of the passage. He, he's moving forward a defense of his ministry and apostleship among the church in Corinth. And he begins this morning's passage by making an appeal to the meekness and gentleness of Jesus. You can see it right there in verse 1. I myself, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So I wanted to begin our time with a quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones in which he gives this definition of meekness. The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself as in his own interests. He's not always on the defensive. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves, but we see there's nothing worth defending. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He's never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you are having a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand you. The one who is meek is the one who is free to care for others. For he has set aside sensitivity for himself. Consider this. All the care that we put into protecting ourselves, to protecting our self-esteem, protecting our reputation, protecting how others view us. What if all of that energy was free? What if all that care and concern was free to care for others? Another way to put it is that the one who is meek is not sensitive to the judgment of others because he has God himself as his only judge. Though he appears as one who is small when faced with the insults of the world, consider Jesus and the insults that were put before him. He looked small on that day. He's not afraid to stand at his full height when the opportunity comes for it. He's not, he knows that not only who he is, the one who is meek, knows who God is and knows to make him known. This is what we'll see as we continue together reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I, Paul, myself, Entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that Just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. 
For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily appearance is weak, presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But but we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. The one who boasts, boasts in the Lord." For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning you would commend your word to us, that we would know to boast in you because your word has been proclaimed and that our hearts have received it by faith because of the gift of faith given to us by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would work your word and will in in our lives as a church, that we would be transformed Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We begin our time by looking at the first few verses of the passage, verses 1 through 6. And here we see it begins with a statement about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. His appeal is by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and yet he goes on to make a number of bold statements, many warnings. Well, let's begin by simply asking, is Christ really meek? Is Jesus really, is the Lord meek and gentle? Well, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is known as a great and fearful day. Why? Because the day of the Lord is distinctly a day of judgment. So what Paul is referring to here is the way of Christ not in the day of the Lord, his second coming, but in his first coming, the day of his incarnation. But he is coming again. And so we would do well to remember that the Lord is not simply meek and gentle, but there is a day of judgment. Let's compare the incarnation with the prophet's word about the Christ, and particularly as we see him in his second coming. In John 3:17 it says, "For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him." What is the purpose of Jesus' coming? Well, he declares it about himself. God doesn't send the son into the world to condemn the world, but meek, gentle, filled with grace, he comes that the world might be saved through him. These are the words of Jesus himself about his first coming. And yet we have other words. And this is the thing that I think is important for us. When Jesus was present with us in the flesh, 
We hear words that are meek and gentle. But when he sends his prophets in the form it, like a letter to his people, he's bold. Ezekiel twelve or Ezekiel thirteen two through three and verse eight. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God: Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing, because you have understood falsehood and seen lying visions. Therefore, behold, I am against you declares the Lord. It sounds like the Lord is bold in his letters, in his messengers to the people, but when he arrives, he's meek and mild. Paul appears to be doing in this passage is he's following the same example, the same pattern. He's bold with warning in his letter to the church, but then when he comes to them, he's gentle and he's meek. In Paul's first visit with the Corinthians, he's been meek and gentle with them, but in his letters, he's been very bold with warning and calls to repentance. But here's the deal. Paul is coming to them again, and he's sending them this final letter before he comes again to them, and his intention when he comes is to deal with their sin and their error when he comes. So what is he warning them about? What are Paul's bold words? To find them, you have to look at chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. This is what he's dealing with. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against thee, and this is important, the knowledge of God. I encourage you, underline that. Don't miss it. What is he against? Whatever is against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. His boldness is the punishing of disobedience, which is the rejection of the knowledge of God. This passage follows the same pattern and the purpose of the entire letter. Paul is speaking strongly again, just like he did in what is known as the severe letter, a letter that we don't actually have recorded for us, but that Paul himself speaks about. It's a letter that was sent to the Corinthians between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In 2nd Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4, he speaks about the letter. He says, "For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you." This is a severe letter with severe warning and great boldness by the apostle. But he did so He sends the severe warning as an act of meekness, gentleness, of love. He writes boldly to them so that when he arrives, everything would be in order. So that when he arrives, the people who have received a word of warning have already turned, repented, have walked in faith. So that when he arrives, he can arrive with joy and enter into a grace-laden ministry among them. Look at verse 2. You can see his heart about this. In verse 2, he says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He doesn't want to show boldness when he arrives. He wants their error to already be dealt with. Friends, this is a beautiful example of church discipline. 
Church discipline is, is really, it's in the word. Church discipline is nothing more than, but nothing less than, church discipleship. It is the church laboring together to follow after Christ. It's our daily labor, not some invading boldness that comes into the church through a side door. Church discipline is the always present work of discipleship in particular moments during the course of the life of the church. And this is a beautiful example of the Apostle Paul being bold in warning and caution in discipleship so that they might share in joy together when present. You see, church discipline is not for the sake of the leaders of the church. It isn't a prideful reaction to protect the self. If it is, it's not meek and it's not gentle. Most importantly, central to the concern of church discipline must be the person's knowledge of God. You see, what what is confronted in church discipline is not... Somehow we're going along and and normal life is fine. Normal little sins are okay to just sort of be present in the church. But then there's this big behavior that happens. And then church discipline comes swooping in with bold claims of warning in order to get behaviors to change. What is wrong that church discipline, that discipleship would be needed among the church? What's wrong? We have failed to walk in a knowledge of our God. This is what's always wrong. This is where our hearts go sideways. This is why we need the prayer of confession week after week and day after day, that we would remember, what have I forgotten about how great is our God that I would run after such foolish things? What is wrong that we need discipline? We need the discipline to remember the knowledge of God. Ephesians 6.12 puts it this way. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, neither are our weapons of the flesh. Our weapons are not about our behaviors. They are about our belief from which our behaviors, from which our sin and disobedience flow. The immediate issue at hand may be a particular behavior, particular sin, but the true issue is the knowledge of God. Do we walk in God and his gospel. And our desire must not be simply for behavior modification or some sort of just coming together of an agreed way to live in a particular environment. Friends, that is a simple and sure self-righteous legalism. Our desire is for humble repentance before the grace of God. That the destruction of our arguments and lofty opinions by which we are derailed from the disciplined life of Christ and faith. That's our goal is the destruction of, of arguments and lofty opinions, not the destruction of the person. But rather that we would be built up, as the Apostle Paul says. So here's what we need to do. We need to, with Paul, consider the relationship between warning and gentleness. What if we understood warning? What if we understood discipline? What if we understood a caution against faithless disobedience as mercy, as 
gentleness and meekness? What if warning is the most gentle thing that a person could do for you? Scott Hafeman has been so helpful to me as a commentator through 2 Corinthians. He says this, Rather, the meekness and gentleness of Christ can be seen in his patient restraint in pronouncing judgment. Like Christ, Paul is giving the Corinthians one last chance to repent. For ironically, in confronting one last time those who are still in rebellion against him in his letter, Paul is actually attempting to avoid the kind of consistency that his opponents apparently desire. Here's what his opponents are calling for, that he would be bold both in letter and in person. But he doesn't want to. He wants the boldness of the warning of the letter to work. And that the church would remember the gospel Receive such discipline so that when he arrives, they might walk in simple fellowship with one another. This isn't the first time that Paul has been bold in his letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, he says this, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That's bold. That's strong. It's a severe discipline. Here he is saying that he is ready to punish once and for all. But his desire is that the church itself will deal with those who are making a wreck of the gospel, who are making a wreck of the knowledge of God. And this is such an important point. His desire is for the church to remember the knowledge of God, that the church would remember that they are the church only because Jesus Christ has come and lived the righteous life that they have not lived so that there is no room for self-righteousness, but only the righteousness of Christ. That they would remember that Jesus has died in their place so that their sins might be forgiven. That there's no deed, no obedience, no act of, of repentance that they could do in and of themselves, but that they could believe in the sacrifice of Christ. And that he has raised and their life is hidden in him, so they need not strive, so they need not be anything but meek before the Lord, because their life is hidden in the risen Christ. This is Paul's concern. It's for the knowledge of God and his gospel. The danger is for the integrity and the proclamation of the gospel itself. His concern is for the knowledge of God and, and how a passive approach to error makes a wreck of the gospel. This is our danger, that we would become acquainted with error, so we let it persist in the small things, and we make a short list of things that need church discipline, rather than knowing that discipline is what we need daily, that our error would be shown in the light of the gospel, shining upon our hearts, not a comparison to one another, but in comparison to the holiness of God. And in that place, we can repent, know the forgiveness that is in Christ, and walk in his beautiful way. Anything less than such discipline makes a wreck of the gospel. It is an integrity of the gospel issue. Failure to heed the boldness and the warning of Paul's writing will result not only in judgment for disobedience when Paul comes, but also in the church 
failing to deal with the issue at hand. Notice that Paul doesn't directly name or even speak of the false teachers. He's addressing the church. His concern is what the faithful in the church will do. His call to the faithful in the church is to be faithful and deal with the integrity of the gospel that is at stake by allowing error to remain. His goal is that they would heed his warning and be renewed in the gospel that he preached among them so that such renewal would clearly mean a marked rejection of those who are opposed to the ministry of the gospel that Paul has preached among them. This is why really the application is found back a few verses earlier when it speaks of the weapons of our warfare. I love the way that the King James Version translates verse 4. It says it this way, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. These great, mighty weapons of God are not of the flesh, but they're offensive. They are moving on the offense against defenses, against strongholds and defenses, against lofty opinions like self-righteous philosophies on their heights. The image is of a fortified city that has built fortifications against the gospel, against faith, arguments, and lofty opinions by which we can, can discover how not to believe. And these lofty opinions are set up on the heights to defend against the gospel. But the weapons of the Lord, the weapons of the Spirit, are offensive. And they tear down the arguments. And they tear down our lofty opinions. Friends, this is a stark reminder that we are in an age of grace. While Jesus tarries, we do well to heed his words, words of warning to repent and believe. And don't sit, don't stand, and think that we have not built arguments against obedience. Sure, I know the gospel. Sure, I know the truth of the ministry. I know it just as good as Paul does. I've read all his letters. But I also know this. And so it's okay for me to kind of walk like this on the side or to build little opinions and philosophies and cultural arguments for the ways that we can live that are opposed to Christ, but it's okay. You and I all daily have reasons that we don't walk in faithfulness. But the gospel itself is the means by which those arguments and those lofty opinions are torn down so that When the Lord tarries no longer, he would find a people of faith in his good news. Because he is coming. And when he returns, he returns for judgment. It's so important for us to remember, perhaps to reflect upon more often than we do. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul gives this charge to the elders. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's doing. Don't miss it. He's calling down God and Christ Jesus as witnesses to the charge. And then he's calling down a reality of the 
attributes and actions of the Lord God. God who is judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, whatever he says next is huge, monumental, non-negotiable. Preach the word. In our passage, we could hear the knowledge of God. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Be bold in the proclamation with meekness and gentleness. Why does Paul give this charge in 2 Timothy by his appearing? When we hear the calling to preach the word, why are we to call to mind he's coming again? Because the call to preach grace is compelled by the warning of impending judgment. The call to preach grace is compelled by the warning of impending judgment. Friends, that's not only a call to preach grace. It's also in that context that we hear grace. The judge is coming, and he is a righteous, good, and holy judge who has made the provision of grace for those who have fallen short. The minister of the gospel preaches the word with complete patience. We remember that the gospel itself is our refuge for the day of judgment. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, and so with meekness and gentleness, not angry nor defensive to protect our own reputation, we minister the gospel as a warning to repent and believe. Friends, today is the day of grace. And some of you are like, yeah, I know. I know, that's so good. I'm so glad for the God. In fact, I'm going to write that down. Today is a day of grace. It's not a note to take. It's a thing to consider. What argument or lofty opinion have I built up by which I can walk in my own way rather than in the light of grace? Today is the day of grace. Judgment is coming. Today is the day to repent and believe. Again, Scott Heffman puts it this way. In particular, Paul's weapons are the manifold proclamation of the truth of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. The truth of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. It is the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit that destroys our strongholds. It is the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit applied to our hearts, which is itself grace that destroys our arguments and our every lofty opinion. This is why Paul is able to turn in the next verses to boasting. A boasting in the proclamation of the gospel because the proclamation of the gospel is grace. Look with me, verse 7. Look what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Don't forget where you heard the gospel in the first place, he's saying. There were some among the Corinthians who were forgetting that they had heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul. 
that the Lord had sent Paul to preach the word. And this is what he did. And it multiplied and it increased in the midst of the proclamation of the word, which is a gift. The Holy Spirit in power worked to transform and convict hearts, which is a gift. Faith was birthed, which is a gift. And salvation birthed the church, which is a gift. The Corinthians lived in an age of grace. And what Paul says here is he's not just a a proclaimer of the gospel. He himself is a recipient of that same gospel that he proclaimed. Do you not know that we too are in Christ just as we proclaimed among you? Friends, this is such a helpful word for us, we who are together in Christ, that we are to remember that we are together in Christ when there is tension between us. You'll notice I didn't say if. Not if there is tension. If there are arguments between us. When. We remember when there's disagreement that it wasn't our agreement or our shared lofty opinions that brought us together in the first place. So how in the world would perfect agreement in arguments Keep us together. We will have a diversity of lofty opinions that need to be torn down. Our togetherness will not be found in agreement in those arguments and lofty opinions. Our togetherness will be found in where it was birthed to begin with. We are together in Christ. Let's go back there and begin to build again. This is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read this for you. Because, friends, this doesn't just describe Corinth. It describes us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are what? In Christ, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast. Do it. Boast in the Lord. So when some among the church begin to think of themselves as wise, and some who are lofty, or sophisticated, or perhaps those in the world move in among us. We do well to remember where we came from and what has brought us together to begin with. This is why Paul begins boasting again. Look at verse 8 with me. For even if I boast a little too much of our own authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. He is not ashamed to boast. Paul is boasting again, but his boast is in the proclamation of the gospel. Such proclamation is the very purpose for which Jesus sent him. The Corinthian church is the fruit 
of that proclamation. Had he not proclaimed the gospel, there would be no church. Where else are you moving on to, Corinth? What boast do you have but that which made you to begin with? Paul's boast isn't in himself. His boast is in the knowledge of God, the word of the Lord, and he's not ashamed to boast in the Lord. That's why Ephesians 6.10, elsewhere where he's speaking of this boast, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Friends, we are to be bold. We are to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. What is that strength? But the truth of the gospel and the power of his spirit. Here's what we do. It's very simple. We preach the word in the morning throughout the day, day by day, and when we gather. Wherever we go, we preach the word and we hear the word, and then we step back and we wait. The word itself that we've preached is a gift from God to us. And we wait for the power of the Spirit. And when the Spirit works in the presence of the word, we call it miracle. And we rejoice, and we begin to boast, and we write songs about what happens when the word is preached and faith is born and transformation happens in the human soul. And we say the Lord is great. Look at verse 12. By comparison. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. What a foolish, weak measure for boasting. I'm better than a human. (laughs) Some other person. What a weak measure. Our worth as recipients of the gospel and ministers of the gospel is found in our faithfulness to the word that we ourselves have received and to our dependence upon the Spirit. Where is our boast in the word that we have received? What is our boast? The Lord has worked in our midst. He is great. It's the word which is the measure of truth. All else is a lofty opinion. It's the Spirit that is the measure of power. All else is vain and carnal and worldly and fleshly. We would do well to remember Martin Lloyd-Jones again on meekness. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He's never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you're having a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand you. You see, the one who is meek is not measured by others and does not compare himself to others. The one who is meek knows Only the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. Friends, there's no greater knowledge to know. And so what that leads us to is a measured boast. So we'll conclude by looking at just the last few verses. Look at verse 13 with me. Just, But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. His boast is in God's sending, God's word, and God's power. Paul is confident, but he's only confident insofar as the Lord has sent him. 
His boast is not in the faithfulness nor the fruitfulness of another's work, but in the Lord's work through him among the Corinthians. It's the Apostle Paul who brought the gospel to them. And it is the gospel which the Apostle Paul is calling them to remember and to remain in. Look at verse 15. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Let's remember that the Corinthians themselves are Paul's letter of recommendation. Were it not for the proclamation of the gospel, there would be no church, he's reminding them. But he also knows that he can't move on into further ministry without seeing them centered in that gospel. For if they do not remain there, they are a church no longer. So Paul's call for the Corinthians is to remain in the gospel, not to move. Even if some group moves in with letters of recommendation from elsewhere, his boast is the call to remember the gospel that he preached when they first believed. It's a call to remember the word of the gospel and to put truth on display. And the power of the Spirit will destroy unbelief and give the gift of faith. That's why verse 17 is so powerful. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The question is not whether or not we boast. We do boast. We do have confidence in something. We all stand on something. We all hope. We have some foundation upon which we build our lives, some understanding of the world. The call is, is that we would place our confidence, our hope, our vision, our standing, and our boast in the Lord. Jeremiah 9.23 is where he really is reflecting when he writes those words. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our boast is that the Lord has made himself known to us. That we have a knowledge of God, which is grace. We boast in the word of the Lord and we boast in the work of the Lord. For Paul, the very existence of the Corinthian church is evidence of God's grace at work. Do they see it? Do we see it? Do we understand that the very existence of the church at Cross Point Coast is a miracle? That if we are a church, if we are a church, and by grace we are, it's by grace we are. It's miracle that we are a church together in Christ, with Christ's church of every time and place we are reminded. Or we will be tempted to become confident in ourselves, confidence that we exist, we are a church. Yes, we are. And we've developed quite a series of standards and arguments and culture and ways. And we begin to take that togetherness for granted, and we think that we're together because we are together not because we have been brought together by Christ. Let me ask this. 
Are there any vain arguments or lofty opinions that have made their way in among us? Do we think that we have great strongholds and defenses by which we can sustain ourselves? Have we built ourselves our own little church kingdom apart from the simple knowledge of God and the power of his spirit? Friends, let us read 2 Corinthians and be careful. That when we read it, we don't think, yeah, we're just like Paul preaching that gospel against them strongholds. That's who we are in this passage. Or perhaps Paul is preaching a warning to us. Perhaps we are far more like Corinth than faithful Paul. The culture in Corinth was enmeshed with many boasts, lofty speech, wealth, high status in the community, successful reputation in other communities, hence the letters of recommendations. And Paul wasn't impressed with any of this. He was what I call a single-issue boaster. His boast was in the word of the Lord and the power of his spirit. He isn't going to lay down these weapons that have proved so powerful for phony tools of a culture that's just too easily impressed. And so I would ask you, is Cross Point Coast cool? Are we clever or fun? Are we exciting or should we be a little more fun, a little more clever? Perhaps we need to be more innovative to increase our reputation in the community. Are we a bastion of doctrinal astuteness? We don't care about fun. We care about being right. Have we dotted all our theological T's? Have we, have we dotted all our theological I's and crossed all our spiritual T's? Have we become impressed, which is another word for self-righteousness, that we are a gospel-centered church? That's what we are. We are a church that is doctrinally serious. Or are we a church that has a strong institutional structure? Are we building policies and standards and solid communication? Do we have powerful policy? Do we have strong strategies and tools? Friends, those are the boasts of our culture. And those are the boasts of our church. But those are not the boasts of Christ. Even a culture of arrogance can so easily make its way into orthodox churches. They're all the wrong questions. What we have to ask is this. Has the Lord worked powerfully in our midst? Has he worked? Has a clear and compelling gospel word produced love in increasing measure? If he has. Rejoice! That word and that spirit has worked. Has the spirit transformed our hearts to cause us to grow in generosity? If so, boast in the Lord. Rejoice! He's working. We have evidence of his grace among us. Have we seen evidence of grace and growth in the fruit of the spirit? Have we seen the Lord plant the gospel in us so that he would give us further regions in which to reach. If we do, our boast is in the Lord, and we sing louder songs. 
for the Lord has done this. And we are amazed. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would cause us to see, as Paul says, behold, look, it's clear that we would see your grace at work among your church and never depart from that being the foundation of what we are, what makes us who we are and what keeps us who we are, yours. May the word increase and multiply among us and may your spirit be put on display in power. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.